Hey folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore Latinx stories around spirituality, identity, and culture. My name is Taylor Ramaj. I'm an author and editor, and my Latina heritage is Boricua, Puerto Rican. This podcast is brought to you by Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida, an LGBTQ Latinx ministry within the United Church of Christ. You can stream the show now on Podbean or subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. While you're doing that, please be sure to rate and review the show. I haven't received any reviews or messages since the last episode, so instead I will tell you about a book I recently loved called We Are Okay by Nina LaCour. It is a very sapphic story about a college student named Marin who is dealing with grief and spending Christmas alone on her campus, except for three days when her ex-girlfriend Mabel flies all the way from California to see her. Listen, I had 18,000 feelings about this book, and Mabel is Mexican-American. So I'd love to hear what you thought of the book if you've read it and what you think of Mabel, especially if you are Mexican or Chicanx. You can send your thoughts or any other message to EncuentrosLatinx at gmail.com. That's Latinx with an S at the end. Okay, my guest today is Reverend Dr. Marilyn Pagan Banks, and we discuss her experiences of Puerto Rican identity and culture here in the States, as well as the fraught history of colonialism and Christianity that formed Puerto Rico and Latin America as we know it today. What have we lost and gained through that history? And what does that knowledge mean today for Puerto Ricans on and off the island? Marilyn also shares the litany of amazing justice work she's doing to heal and uplift her community. So let's get right into this encuentro. so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm super, super excited to have you on the show. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Thank you, Taylor. I'm super excited as well. So I am Reverend Dr. Marilyn Pagan Banks. My preferred pronouns are she, her, ella. Wonderful. And you are the second Boricua that we've had on this show. We had Edwin in episode one. We have you now. And in our in our group, we have quite a few others. So we seem to be everywhere, which is Yay. which is wonderful. Uh, and I already actually answered the next question, but I'm going to ask it again. What country or countries do you and your family come from? Puerto Rico. Yay. And here in the United States. Yes, yes. And what is a good memory that you have either about Puerto Rico or growing up with the culture? The memory that comes to mind is the way that we would make space in our homes for family migrating to the U.S. from Puerto Rico. I only got to visit Puerto Rico once as a child, and it was a beautiful experience. But when I think about my childhood and the connections to Puerto Rico, it was the ways in which family would come. We would make space. We would help them find an apartment. We would share stories. We would, you know, share pictures and look out for each other. We did a lot of eating and dancing, good music, and just grounding ourselves in the tradition of what it meant to be Boricua. 
And did your family, so where in the U.S. did your family end up settling? Because I know there are a few major hubs where a lot of Boricuas go. So did you end up in one of those? Yes, Chicago, and that's where I was born. And Same. then my, <laughs> And then my dad moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and on a visit decided not to bring me back to my mom. So I was raised in Cleveland with my father and a stepmother in a very predominantly Puerto Rican community Hmm. in Cleveland. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's, it's kind of the opposite of my own experience. Like I was born in Chicago too, but my, my mom and my dad moved to Baltimore when I was just two years old. So I didn't really have memories of growing up in a place where there were a lot of other Latinx around and specifically where there were a lot of other Boricuas around. So it's, really awesome that you got to have that experience. So what is your sense of your Latinx identity and what helps you really connect to that? We got in a little bit into the eating and dancing and and stuff, but what really creates that strong sense of identity for you? Well, in my house, anytime we spoke about Americanos, we weren't talking about folks who were part of the U.S. For us, Americanos were white folks. And so we were very clearly Puerto Ricanos, Puerto Ricanas, very strong in our identity. Um, and again, we followed the traditions. We maintained the language in the home and a strong sense of pride. Uh, and I learned later on that we were, we were a bit nationalistic. <laughs> um, and I learned that, especially coming to, back to Chicago. But yeah, really connected to an understanding of what it meant to be part of a tradition where you know, and some people say, ni de aquí, ni de allá, right? But finding our grounding in our people and in the island, even if we've never been there or even if our connection wasn't very strong, there was never a question as to our belonging to the people, right, of belonging to the island. But I didn't learn any of the politics in terms of what it meant to be Puerto Rican, uh, understanding what it meant to be a colonized people, understanding you know, what it meant to be a citizen of this country, but not by choice, but because of you know, what's happened in, the, in our history. And so all the politics around that, I learned that when I came back to Chicago to go to seminary. And it's been a real gift. And it's also been very painful, but it's also... <laughs> further uh, deepened my sense of pride of being Boricua and also, you know, caused me to struggle anew with my faith and with my understanding of what it means to be a person of faith or a Christian, given what I now know about what one professor talked about as the violent evangelism of the indigenous and the African ancestors of Puerto Rico. So, yeah. All of that. <laughs> that's that's so much. And, and that's so good. There, Oh, my gosh. There's so many interesting things we could get into. I, I guess the, the first thing is I'm, I'm really curious for you to unpack this idea of Puerto Rican nationalism. What is that and what does that mean? So, again, you know, growing up, I, I understood it and I didn't have the language around nationalism. It was simply, you know, a lot of pride around being Boricua, a lot of pride around being Puerto Rican. And my exposure to folks from other countries, Spanish-speaking countries, was very limited growing up. But I do recall 
every once in a while, a comment will be made about someone from another country based on, you know, the color of their skin or a comment made about someone else from another country based on uh, whether or not they had papers and not always positive comments. And, and I'm not saying they were deep, political, hateful kind of comments, but this real sense of othering, right? We're Puerto Rican, they're not. They're this, and that means this in the context of what it, since they're not Puerto Rican, right? It was just always a sense of, yeah, othering in ways that I, I came to find out later that really was, you know, internalized colonialism and internalized oppression and really just trying to hold on to who we are, not to, not to get lost in it. But unfortunately, that often showed up in in separating ourselves from others where our connection is really deeper than, than I certainly didn't know that growing up, but I certainly know it now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's heavy. And I'm, I'm especially thinking about what, what was it that you said, the violent evangelism of the Puerto Rican people. And just something I've been thinking about lately is my mom grew up very Catholic. She eventually converted to, uh, to Protestantism and that was such a strong part of my own growing up. But then as I've really thought deeper about colonialism and, you know, everything that has happened in Puerto Rico over, over the history, I, I really find myself asking, like, would I be a Christian today if not for colonialism? Because Abuela passed down her faith to my mom. And, you know, my mom passed it down to me. And I, I just it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot. So I'm really, really interested for you to dive into all of your thoughts around that. Yes, I was raised Roman Catholic and um, I went to Catholic school starting first grade all the way through the ninth grade. And, and if it wasn't because I was trying to <laughs> seek a career on the stage, I would have stayed in, in the Catholic school and graduated from there. And so... Part of my pain around this conversation is the fact that I believe it's the responsibility of the church to always be telling the truth, even about ourselves and even when it's hard. And so to come to seminary, and it was in seminary to kind of learn the history of the Catholic Church and all of its violence and to know that we as a people came about through the rape and the causing folks to leave their country and make them slaves someplace else and, and sort of just a pillage of a people. And that's how, that's what we were born out of as Puerto Ricans. For me, that was so painful because I just felt like, you know, the United States is going to tell a story in a particular way, right? And if you go to public school, I'm not saying it's right either, but then you, you know, you would expect if you go to public school, then you got to follow a particular curriculum. I felt like <laughs> to be exposed to this as an adult and to realize that, you know, that the church that I held dear, where I found sort of my connection to Jesus, didn't tell the truth, the whole truth, really just broke my heart. And it took, and it, I'm not even going to say I'm all the way over it, and it's been more than 20 years. It, it broke my heart because I just felt like you have the responsibility to tell the truth. And for me, when you tell the truth about how you started, even if it's messed up, the fact that the heart of Jesus was trying to be carried through, then maybe there could be some forgiveness, right? But to, to lie <laughs> and to sort of not own the complicity of the church in the colonizing 
and the genocide and the horror that happened, you know, under the permission, quote unquote, of the cross and the crown, not telling that true story, I just think is just, is a slap in the face to Christ. And, you know, I grew up under the tradition that if you don't believe in Jesus, that you're going to go to hell. And so this learning of what kind of God would condemn a people to hell when it was the church itself or herself or himself that <laughs> fucked it all up, right? That really distorted the good news, distorted the Jesus movement in such a way that one, some folk may not ever hear about Jesus. And so what kind of God would condemn that, you know, that people to hell? And two, those that did, but experienced it as a violent understanding or a violent tradition, would God condemn that people to hell because of what we did wrong? I mean, it just blew my mind. <laughs> and yeah, the complicity of the church around further perpetuating empire, the complicity of the church of causing us to other ourselves so that white supremacy and empire can continue to grow and build and be strong is something I think we still have to wrestle with, especially as Latinx people. Yeah, totally, totally. Oh, gosh, it's all it's all heavy stuff. It's all good stuff because it, it needs to be said, right? And I've been really about this whole idea of decolonizing Christianity mm. because part of what gives me hope about Christianity specifically is that it does have such a long history that it did exist before it became a tool of empire. Like there is a part of its very early history, like before it was co-opted into empire. It's amazing to me that even despite everything empire has done, that the message of, of Jesus and, and liberation like still comes through despite all of that. So that that's something that I, I definitely think about a lot. And do you think that the church has gotten any closer to telling the truth? Not adequately, I don't think. I believe that there are many who are attempting to tell the truth, but I don't know how many are willing to sort of deconstruct what was created. It's one thing to tell the truth and be like, you know, I want to own this. And it's sort of like even this conversation, for example, to use the to use the conversation around anti-racism, right? It, it's one thing to say as white people, you know, we hear white people say, I'm not racist or that wasn't me. That was my ancestors and that kind of thing. Or I'm sorry that happened. Now let's move on. And so I think I've heard some sense of owning it a bit from the church, but not in a way that there's a, a willing to reconstruct the actual tr the whole truth you know what I'm trying to say it's one thing to say I'm sorry and try to move past it and it's another thing to like undo rewrite and retell in a way that really it's not just about saying I'm sorry but there's a, a true sense of transformation I think you can repent and real repent calls for transformation so saying you're sorry and repenting are not always the same thing so yeah, I think we've got a lot more work to do. and But I, I do feel like there is a movement towards reclaiming also what we lost because of the church. You know, for many, we gained Jesus, but what are the many things that we lost because we were told it had to be this or that? 
Dr. Melva Sampson, you know, I listened to her on Sunday mornings and I love what she's been saying the last couple of times I've logged on is, uh, are we going to begin to follow Jesus and not simply worship Jesus? And so I think the role of the church is to teach us and help us relearn that Christ, we created the church and Jesus was here to teach us how to live in love with one another and connected to God, but not to create some brand new tradition, but to teach us how to live fully into the traditions that we claim and making sure that that's grounded in love. And so that's, you know, when I say to people, I'm still Christian because of who Christ was. I'm not still Christian because of how the church has shown up, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think a lot of people who are somewhere on the journey of deconstructing their Christian faith arrives at some version of that point. And I especially appreciate you bringing up how we gain Jesus, but what have we lost in terms of the traditions? And I just think about how when I was growing up, I mean, I mean, my, my mother still very much is like, she's a very strong conservative Christian and that that's her belief and that's her reality. And with that comes a rejection of the traditionalisms and the indigenous type of, of stuff. There's that narrative that you get where like once you convert to that version of Christianity, that those indigenous beliefs, they're really, it's demonic and all, like all that kind of stuff that gets thrown around. And so, uh, so I'm, I'm curious as to your, I don't know if reconciliation is really the right word for it, but just I feel like there's a sense where like you can have such a strong Catholic identity or a a strong type of of Christian identity as a Latinx, or you might come from that context. And then when, what do you do when you encounter the beliefs and traditions that came before and how are people either, you know, are they fully rejecting Christianity? Are they embracing both in this kind of syncretism? And like, what does that mean theologically? I'd love to just hear your thoughts about that. Hmm. I believe that, God cannot be placed in a Jesus box. And again, for me, following the example of Jesus, which was to be theocentric, to be community-centered. So Jesus-centered God and centered community, not himself and not not even, you know, the tradition that, that he came from, right? And so for me, when I think about that, it just makes so much room for the many ways that God continues to show up. You know, if we believe in a living God, then how can we talk about a God that would only fit this particular box, right? Or look this particular way. And so being mindful of the many ways that, so for me, I claim Christianity because I choose, I'm connected to and I choose the way of Christ for myself as the way that I am going to live out my connection to God, right? As, as the example, but I don't close myself off to other ways of connecting to God because I, I think it's a smack in the face to God, first of all. And secondly, God is just so much bigger than any tradition that we could ever try to, or any idol we might ever try to, to create. And that even making an idol of Jesus for me is against what Jesus was attempting to do through his living and embodying God's love in the world. And so really just trying to connect to the idea of of ancestors and really trying to remember the ways in which 
uh, those other traditions showed up. But again, because there was so much shame and guilt around it, it was done always with the sense of secrecy. You know, I'm going to go light a candle for this situation, but there wasn't there, you know, there wasn't an altar laid out like we would see now maybe in some homes. There wasn't this kind of real owning of these other traditions that were there before or still part of who we are as a people. So now I'm rediscovering it and I'm also, you know, finding new ways of connecting that are brand new, that are being brought forth by others in this work. Um, and it's a blessing. It's a blessing. I was at a healing service just the other day, across the street from the church, and there were folks from all kinds of traditions there. And there was nothing said or done where I felt like God's presence wasn't in the midst of it, right? Um, and I'm talking uh, indigenous dance, and there was folks coming from different countries expressing their way of connecting to the divine. And it was beautiful with the whole idea that, you know, as part of creation, we are connected. And however we express our relationship with the divine, if it's not showing up in how we relate to one another, that's where the real question comes in about, you know, is God in it or not? <laughs> and not so much did it follow this exact kind of doctrine or dogma, you know. Yeah. And I find all of that so intriguing because again, like I grew up with such an internalized message about like, these over here are false idols and they have to be, you have to reject them and you can't, like I wasn't allowed to read Harry Potter as a kid. Of course, now we're all canceling JK Rowling, <laughs> but like that, that was the environment that I grew up in. And I, you know, very much lived into those influences. So for me, certainly it's new and I'm finding a newer way to just not be afraid of encountering those traditions. I, I think that's the big thing for me. Like, I ended up being, you know, I, I was like, oh, I have to be careful about that. I can't, I can't go near that because that's bad. Like, and there was this fear around it. And now I'm finally at a place where I'm like, you know what? Like, if I, if I have God, then I don't need to be afraid of learning what this other person is doing. I can learn about what this other person is doing and like be connected to them and be their friend and, and be with them and not be afraid of their particular belief or tradition. And I can let go of whatever judgments or fears I have around that. I think that sort of reconciliation is really awesome and, and beautiful. And quite frankly, it's got to be part of the way that the church moves further into the 21st century. Because I, I don't think we can be, because again, that fear of like demonizing other traditions, especially indigenous ones, that's what the colonialism did. That's how people got converted. And, you know, it's all tied into that. And when you start questioning that colonialism, you're like, well, is it really good for me to be so afraid of somebody's traditional or somebody's indigenous tradition that they're expressing right now? Like, where is that coming from? And that really is coming from a colonized belief or, or mindset. Yeah, I like the, um, it, it kind of brings up the connection between that I experienced around growing up in the Catholic Church and even growing up as a, as a Latina. More emphasis was placed on the, what you're not supposed to do, lo que no se hace, as opposed to the many ways you can experience God, right? It's not supposed to happen this way. It's only supposed to look this way. But it, that showed up culturally as well. So I think, again, when you think about the role of the church, in particular in communities that have been colonized, 
sometimes it's hard to kind of separate church and culture, right? It's like so meshed. And so when I think about all the don't do this that I heard in school, it's often what I heard at home and don't do this. This is what it means to be female. This is what it means to be a good girl. This is what it means to be a good Catholic. And it was more around what you don't do. And certainly not in how do you show up in your full self or how do you find God for yourself? How do you, you know, I, I had a recurring dream that I never felt comfortable to share in my family, even though my family, you know, was a church growing, you know, church attending family. But it was so weird that I, I, I didn't feel the connection, which would have led to some safety around sharing that dream. But I had a recurring dream that I was following Jesus, like Jesus was always checking in on me, making sure I was cool. I'm still there. And, and I would still follow. And, and the fact that, you know, here I am attending Catholic school, I have this Catholic family, but there was such a disconnect around how that showed up in my house in terms of being able to share what that could have possibly meant. Because in my mind, in my house is you're a girl. So you, you know, you can't, you can't lead in the church, all those things like that. Right. And so this idea of what you're not supposed to do, as opposed to this expansive ways, the expansive ways that we can experience God showed up in the same way of, you know, so you got to think about if we don't know how to relate to God, how are we going to relate to one another? And if we're seeing God as this kind of, you know, off way up high, unapproachable God, male God, to be clear, you know, how did we begin to understand how we are connected to one another, especially, you know, as a girl child who's always told what not to do or how to show up so as not to bring shame or cause harm or be harmed. (laughs) All those locanoseases were deep, deep in the church and deep in our culture. Yeah. I grew up with some sense of that. Like my mother is really the one who passed on the sense of strong faith. And, you know, she was very, very intentional about me having some sense of faith. And in a lot of ways, I'm I'm grateful for that. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I've departed and unpacked a lot of things, but it's really all all to her and the way that she raised me that I had such a strong foundation of faith to begin with. But I definitely encountered many of those same ideas, especially in youth group, uh, just around how you're supposed to behave as a girl and how you can't wear certain things because you'll tempt the boys. We were responsible for what boys may or may not do or may or may not feel. And if you were gay, you had to, you know, you had to really think on that and uh, get that sorted out and not be that anymore. So I, I definitely relate to that. And I know you have some experience around around that too. So what was that like in your context? <laughs> yeah, there's an example that I that I shared. Uh, somebody asked about our memory around our first communion for those of us who experienced that. And the memory that comes to mind for me was I was trying on my veil and I sang the the wedding march and you know out loud and my father smacked me. So here I was seven, and the idea of his seven-year-old thinking about marriage or not even understanding about where that came from, there was no question, there was no laugh, nothing, just the, you know, you're being fast or whatever, just a smack, right? And so the idea of being able to talk about these things, to talk about sexuality, to talk about 
you know, what it would mean to dream to be married one day or what, you know, even trying to take some of the teachings around the church is, is the bride of Christ. (laughs) I'm not saying that any of that was in my mind at the time, but like, there was like no opportunity to unpack any of that in my house. And so, no, there were no talks about sexuality, sensuality, you know, dreaming about being married or having children, even though I think there was an expectation around that. And so when things began to come up around sexuality, most of those questions, you know, I would have in isolation in my own room, talking to myself or trying to figure it out or exploring or, or you know, if, if there was any moments of reaching out to someone else, it was, there was never any unpacking. There was never any, where did this come from? There was never any, hey, I can't believe we just did that. What do you think it means? Nothing, right? So on the one hand, as someone who on the outside would appear to very to be very bold and, and courageous, and I was the one everybody would dare to do stuff. On the other hand, the processing, the reflection, the trying to understand whatever was happening or what I was engaging in, whether it was in my own feelings or actually acted out on, there was never an opportunity for that work to happen. And I can't help but connect, you know, this whole shame culture, the strictness of it, the colonialism, the the machismo, you know, all that connected both with the church and the culture, I think, led to some very unhealthy ways of beginning to know who I was in my own body, how I express love with others. I don't know if that answered your question. I feel like I... <laughs> oh, that's... You, you can you can answer these questions in whatever way the Lord calls you to answer the questions. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm receptive and and ready for it all. So it's listen. One time, I, one time, and I don't know. There, again, maybe it's because it wasn't a safe space to be able to. I didn't have that person. I didn't have that space to talk about sexuality or or anything. And I remember, but then I, you know, I was on the other hand very curious and and not too quiet about some of that. So. And the spaces were some some growth and conversation and space for finding myself, you know, where that should have happened in a a safe space. It wasn't. And then so I would act out in other ways. Let me put it that way. So I I remember, again, in in Catholic school, we we went through the lunch line. We had to turn in our lunch card. And I had wrote this little poem that I had found that said, a peach is a peach, a plum is a plum. But what is a kiss without a tongue? And... I, I forgot that I wrote it on there, turned it in to the nuns. And next thing I know, I'm in the office the next day with my dad, who's ready to kill me, and the nuns asking me, why in the world would a young girl be writing this type of thing? And it was so innocent. Like, I'll remember it being so innocent. I thought it was funny. And of course, you know, I was a preteen. So yeah, kissing was like, you know, you kiss and run and, and you think it's funny. It wasn't that big of a deal, but anytime there was even a thought of expressing myself or or, or questioning something out loud, it would get squished. And so <laughs> that connection between how that was showing up for the church and at home was just so, so, so real. Sometimes it's hard to tell which line was what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and damaging too because that stuff like that is just such a source of repression and then you know like you said it either comes out in weird ways or you're just not cognizant of your full self for so long and then you you come into an awakening of yourself and you realize like I guess everything you you missed and there's this level of like it's pain in in many ways like because you're like I I missed going through this huge part of my life not being able to understand my full self and I mean that's applicable just in so many aspects of identity and being it's just mind-boggling how church can still perpetuate these kinds of cultures Ugh. um I do have a question that's going back to talking about Puerto Rico a little bit because I'm I'm really curious about your thoughts because I, I know that there's a there's the movement about Puerto Rico becoming independent versus statehood versus something else. And I since I don't live on the island and I'm not really I'm not really like embedded into a lot of the political discussions and I don't have a, a massive in-person community of Boricuas to really like hear about this in a nuanced way. I, I'm I'm just curious about, you know, what what did you hear around that discussion growing up in your communities and where do you land on that now? So, uh, again, I didn't hear any political talk about Puerto Rico at all. I didn't visit the island of Puerto Rico with my father until 2007. The time that that we went as a family when I was a child, he didn't go because he had to work. And so it was my stepmother and I and my stepbrother. So there was no conversation about Puerto Rico, none of the politics. No, he, you know, he had, he still to this day has such a painful connection to, you know, why he had to leave, how poor he was, the struggle that he had, you know, leaving a place that he didn't want to leave, but had to in order to survive. And so he didn't really talk about it growing up. And my stepmother grew up in San Juan. And so it was a whole different kind of experience for her uh, than it was for him. But now, you know, again, coming here and learning so much and getting politicized around uh, the history and getting angry about it, I very much would say that I'm a nationalist. Have I done the hard work of figuring out what that would look like or should, you know, not, no, I haven't, but I, I have had lots of conversations with people who are there and people who are here, when I say here in Chicago, around self-determination, around the sense of, yes, there'll be a lot of adjustments that have to be made. There's a lot of work that would have to happen. And we all believe that the United States owes a debt <laughs> to Puerto Rico. And so in terms of like, just uh, saying, well, now y'all figure it out. I, we don't believe that's the way it's supposed to happen either. But I'm very, very much about independence for Puerto Rico and believe that, you know, we ought to get to decide within the framework of the dependency that's been created, the systemic poverty that's been perpetuated, all the colonialism that even is felt in our DNA for people who were born and raised here in the United States, all that, uh, not to set that aside and say, you know, if we if we were to be independent, we're going to figure it all on our own because there has to be a sense of accountability 
for the damage that's been done. But that that work and and how that that strategy and where to begin and and how to make it happen definitely needs to happen by the people for the people, right? And I love, and this doesn't apply to everybody because I have had some folks from Puerto Rico say, if you were born and raised in the States, you shouldn't call yourself Puerto Rican. I'm totally against that. But I, and on the other hand, there have been many, many, many nationalist Puerto Ricans that I trust and look up to who would always and forever claim that, you know, those of us, whether we were born here or born there are Puerto Rican and have a say in this work and a say and a hand in the healing of, of ourselves and of our people and of our island, right? And, you know, I went to lunch with my dad a couple, well, it's been some years now, and there was a poster on the restaurant wall that said 500 years of history, and it showed el Taino, el Africano, the Spaniard, and then in the movement, it was like a circular, a circular movement, there was the Hibato, like that was the Hibato is born of all these, right? And so I said something to my dad about having having that same poster. And when I tell you that I almost broke down and cried in that restaurant, because my father looked at me, this man born and raised in Puerto Rico, and said and asked, I don't know what that means, or said, I don't know what that means. And then when I explained what I how I understood it, he, this kind of quick uh, look of pride came over his face, but at the same time, there was this, this sense of embarrassment in his eyes because he said, look at that. I was born and raised there, and I didn't even know that. But I understand, and I didn't really recognize it in that moment, but I, I do understand that when a people's history is stolen or they don't have access to it because of a lack of education, that is the project of empire, right? That is the project of colonialism is to steal people's history, to, to cause them not to know. And so, yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm, I need to know and I need to fight for those who even in the midst of it, when you're trying to survive, sometimes you don't have access to all that systemic and, and bigger than your own situation. And for my father not to know that about his own country, because of the lack of education he had access to, because of how poor he was, just broke my heart. And I feel like we we all have some role to play to make sure that we're keeping up that work for those who who didn't have the ability or the you know the access to it. Yeah, that's super heavy. And as you were telling the story, I mean, I I felt really connected to your father's experience in that moment because. I mean, I'm coming from a, another angle, but I relate to this sense of not knowing the culture and, and the history because of my circumstances of just being separated and disconnected from it and, and the ways that I was very easily able to allow my whiteness to just let me blend into everything else. And, it, you know, it's kind of this easy thing for me to to do. And I became disconnected and I've been I've been finding ways to reconnect. And one of those ways is this podcast and the work that we're doing with Proyecto. And there's other things that, that I'm doing too. And it's just like every every time I learn something new, I'm like, I'm so glad I know that. And then also I'm like, I'm so sad that I'm almost 30 years old and I didn't have that connection before. I'm rereading this comic anthology called Puerto Rico Strong. And this was released 
as a charity effort right after Hurricane Maria happened. So all proceeds of this comic anthology went to help the hurricane relief efforts. And it's a collection of art and short comic stories that are just all about Puerto Rico and and the history. And it gets into the Tainos and the colonization and the diaspora and these different policies that happen and like how the flag, how Puerto Ricans couldn't fly the Puerto Rican flag until 1957. There was like a law that disallowed that. And I feel like I knew that before. And maybe even when I was a child, somebody told me that, but it's like, sometimes I've learned information and then I forget the information and then I encounter it again. It's like, why did, how did I forget this? You know, but that's a really, really good anthology. If you haven't read it, it's really awesome. And some of the things that gets into are just so heavy. And it's like, we didn't learn about Puerto Rican history in school. Like really all I learned about when I went to school was, oh yeah, Puerto Rico is a territory of the U.S. And maybe we learned that it belonged to Spain once and then it belonged to the U.S. But we don't get into any of it at all. And not any real clarity about what that meant either. Because so again, you know, we didn't talk about anything politic at all in my house, but we also, like you said, in terms of the history. And so even though I think there is space for ambiguity, I think it's, I think for as a person who really believes in self-determination and being able to identify ourselves, how we want to, or how we're called to, and where we find our being, there's also this this space of um, it, maybe it's not the same thing as ambiguity, but this intentional lack of clarity, right? This sort of half truth around Puerto Rico. So again, I remember having a conversation with someone, and they were like, "Puerto Rico is not a state," because somebody in the room wasn't clear about whether Puerto Rico was a state, but just because of the relationship the unclear relationship. Now, I mean, people, we talk about it a lot more now. And there was, of course, during the time of the national, the Puerto Rican political uprisings that have happened, of course, then it's more out there. But if, if it's not talked about in your house and you know you can come and go and there isn't ever a conversation about immigration, none of that kind of stuff, there's an easy way of not knowing. <laughs> and then for those of us who who are always sort of seeking to know more, I was like totally humiliated <laughs> to, to not know. Like, I felt like I should have known. But at the same time, it's like, how do you know what you don't know? And so the more that I can share with my own children and my grandchildren, or even in conversation with others who are, you know, just being very clear about the role of Puerto Rico, which is why I don't fly the American flag. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to fly the American flag until the Puerto Rican flag is free. Right. Still might not even fly it there, but anyway, that's, that's, you know, and it's not because I I've had this growing up in this movement kind of thing, but because just feeling such a rage around what was withheld, which I believe it was intentional in order to continue to oppress and, and to divide right? If folk don't know their history and if folk don't know the whole truth, then it's so easy for us to keep us at each other's throats. And so here you have these three parties in Puerto Rico right now. Can you imagine how powerful that country, our country could be if all of us were on the same page, right? But there's this intentional kind of keeping folk apart. And a lot of that goes back to this disconnect to our own story. And 
are not willing to be aware of that even our quote unquote story isn't all the same, even with on an island, right? My father growing up in Patilla with an eighth grade education did not understand his own genealogy as someone who maybe went to school and went to college in San Juan, right? The same island, same people. I'm so glad you brought that up about the differences in experiences because I feel like it's really easy to slip into this mindset that, you know, all Puerto Ricans have the same experience or all Latinx have the same experience. And that's part of the work, certainly of, of this podcast and also the work that we're doing with Proyecto is to poke holes in that and to show that all of us, we have, we certainly have some shared stuff, but all of our stories aren't the same just because we share this thing that is often grouped together as a singularity, if that makes sense. Speaking of your work, I want to get into the justice and pastoral work and any other work that you want to tell us about. I'm super excited to hear about all the stuff that you're doing and why it's important to you. So, well, I currently serve as the executive director of an organization in Chicago called A Just Harvest. And we started off almost 40 years ago as a quote-unquote soup kitchen ministry of a local UCC church, Good News Community Church. I give them a shout out. (laughs) And, you know, I served on the pastoral staff with the church a while back. And when the organization was being formed as a nonprofit in order to expand our reach and also to be able to raise the resources that we would need to actually begin to do more work, systemic work, and not only charity work, then I was invited to apply for the position. So anyway, I've been here going on 18 years. We do engage in community organizing around issues that keep people poor and hungry. Right now that shows up for us in working towards a fair tax, meaning the rich should pay more and the poor should pay less. Right now there's a flat tax in Illinois and we all pay the same, which is ridiculous, which often means we don't have enough money to support the public works that we need for our communities. We also do work around ending money bond. Folks should not be held in jail simply because they don't have money to pay for bail while they're awaiting trial. So here you have folks who have not been convicted of anything who sometimes spend years in jail waiting, awaiting trial. We do work around a living wage campaign. We're doing work with the Poor People's Campaign. Things that we feel and are drawn to because of where we are in community. So the community is saying these are the things we want the organization to pay attention to with us. Any police violence, making sure people have enough to eat, making sure people have access to living wage jobs and that and, and health care and that type of thing. That's what I do here in a nutshell. Also, Pastor San Lucas United Church of Christ. San Lucas is a urban church in a predominantly Latinx community. It's predominantly Puerto Rican and African-American in our makeup. We are looking for new ways to engage around that identity, Afro-Caribbean identity in some real intentional ways politically, but also culturally and how that's gonna show up in terms of music in our church. And so this time of uh, remote (laughs) worship is giving us some space to have some conversations with people who do this kind of music and say, hey, What's the chance of taking this hymn and putting it to some bomba or plena type of music? Because that's that's who we are culturally. And like really 
using this opportunity to do that work while the church continues to be open every single day, providing service, providing meals, providing groceries, providing assistance with the census, providing clothing. The church has always modeled that to be the church is every day and not just what happens for that hour, hour and a half, two hours on Sunday. And so us not being able to worship together while it is challenging has not meant anything in in terms of us being the church uh, every single day. Um, I teach at McCormick Theological Seminary as an adjunct in the ministry field, and I've been doing more and more writing. I wrote for a book called Words of Her Mouth, Psalms for the Struggle that was published by the UCC. There's 15 of us that took part in that, and so I'm trying to do more writing, wishing that I would just slow myself down a little bit to really put in the time around that and some research around some of the things that we've talked about. You know, one of the things that I did learn growing up that I'm trying to unlearn is I don't need to be the fixer and I don't need to be everywhere all the time doing everything that if there is tension or something happening, you know, within, within my family or within the community, then yes, I mean, we all have a role to play, but I don't have to be the one to step in and fix things so that I can give myself permission to step back and go deeper so there's some of that unlearning that I'm doing around that <laughs> as I do this work. I, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to to be around folks like you and others at Encuento and other places where brilliance shows up and creativity shows up. And it just kind of, it not just warms my heart, but it re-inspires me for the work to know that there's so much giftedness and possibility and there's so much that, that's happening towards this movement that I believe that even though it's a hell of a fight, um, using the words of Asata Shakur, it is our duty to win. So I think that um, I'm excited about that. You certainly are doing a lot of really cool work. And the part of my brain that likes to be a little bit silly, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about your work in getting more Latin music, like taking the hymns and putting it to Latin music. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can we just drop a reggaeton album of like all the, all the old hymns? Cause that would be pretty. Yes. Cool. That would be <laughs> wonderful. I would, I would, I would listen to the, I would listen to that like every single day. I also love how part of your work involves healing among and within the African-American and, and Latinx cultures. Cause one thing that I think about, I don't know if you've ever seen Orange is the New Black. Have you watched that? I have. Okay. Way back in season two, I think it was season two when that show, that season aired, and they had this whole conflict between the Latinas and the black girls. And I was watching that and I was like, what? What are they going to do when there's a an Afro-Latina who comes up in there? Like it created this message, right, that, that a Latina is one type of person and that Africans aren't a part of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, this, this is like, it's, this is kind of a tangent, but just, it's a problem with representation and stories and in media of like, when you have one specific idea of what a Latina or what a Latinx can be and what a Latinx can look like, then you end up with these shows that create these conflicts between people that really have shared roots. You saw it. So what did you think about that? Yeah, that always breaks my heart. You know, as I mentioned previously, I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and not to say that there wasn't any blatant racism and all that there, of course there was. But my experience growing up was that 
the African-American and Puerto Rican, I'm going to just be specific to Puerto Rican because I didn't grow up around any other Spanish-speaking folks. Folk were like, you know, I'm, I'm crossing my, like we were one, right? <laughs> and like how we engaged with one another growing up, how we, how we spoke to one another. And so all the while be very, being very clear about who we were, you know, I, I was Puerto Rican and that kind of thing, right? Um, but they come into Chicago and, you know, the division, and it's just so clear. And, and then hearing from the church, like my very first conversation with another minister uh, was about how do we, we were talking about church growth or trying to organize around a particular issue. And I, and I mentioned a black church and saying, hey, they've been doing X, Y, Z. Why don't we talk to them? And having a minister say, oh, no, that's for them to figure out their own communities. We need to figure out our own community. And I don't believe when he saw the look on my face, he quickly let me know that he wasn't meaning like there aren't ways for us to work together, but, and that there was a sense of self-determination in terms of how we take care of our own selves, our own communities. And I kind of got that, but really not understanding, you know, the connection in the fight or the power that can be had if we were to see our connection, not just in the fight, but in our connection as siblings, right? So it's not just for the fight, but if we are going to fight, then as you mentioned, you know, we don't all look the same. Our stories aren't all the same, but we do, we have common roots and we have a common struggle and there's an intentionality of keeping us separated. And so how do we not allow that to happen? And so I came to seminary as a single mother. My girls would tell anybody that would ask them that they were Puerto Rican and black. And then to come here, they were, because they didn't speak Spanish, they were forced to choose. And even though they still claim their Puerto Rican identity, when there's been struggles between what they would call the Spanish speaking community and the black community, they would align themselves and identify themselves as black. And then of course, the more we dig into all of that as a family and even as a community and beginning to understand and expand the language of Black beyond African-American, but Black as in the African diaspora, then, you know, again, it becomes, no, we really do have skin in this fight. This isn't just somebody trying to land in a particular place that they're drawn to, but that there really is a connection that's deeper that is, you know, right down to our blood, right, right down to our history that has shown us how empire pits us against each other and how we will continue to lose or not make big enough changes if we don't connect around, you know, our common roots. And so often I'll say to folks, look, I'm not claiming to be African-American. I'm not African-American. But if I have to check a box in terms of race, I check off black because race as a political construct here in this country, you know, as a Puerto Rican, that's the box that I check off. Not trying to claim any experience that I haven't felt or that my people haven't felt. And not only understanding, but seeking to understand even more the uniqueness of, of my experience or my family's experience in on that spectrum, right? So that we, yes, we're making connections, but we're not diluting the the nuances right so that that's not my intent and so really i finding some solid footing in that 
has been important for me personally and for me as a mother and a grandmother to to like black presenting children right i had a whole conversation via facebook with on a page that i got uninvited to because i don't present as a black puerto rican and it was fine because you know also trying to honor the space that was trying to be created by the person who was doing it right but sharing (laughs) how we can't perpetuate you know colorism and bad behavior, like to just be mindful of it, even as we're seeking in some ways to be very specific at any given time around healing and awareness. So, but I feel like it's important to struggle with the conversation because I don't want my daughters and my grandchildren, my son, I keep saying daughters because I got a son, but he's young, he's, he's a lot younger to ever feel like you know, and we've we've all heard this, uh, you're not Latina enough, you're not black enough, you're not whatever enough. And not to be not to allow themselves to be made to feel unworthy in any space simply because somebody else is trying to make that determination for them. Yeah. I completely relate to everything you just said about that because that connects a lot to my own experience and some of the, both the circumstantial denial and also the self-denial that I did, especially when you said that your, you know, your girls had to, because they didn't speak Spanish, they had to choose between being black or being Puerto Rican identified. And when certain conflicts came up, I mean, my details are different, but I certainly have a very similar experience of feeling that same way where like I felt invalidated and I invalidated myself because of these parameters that we put on ourselves and on each other about who really counts as, as Latinx and all of that stuff that, you know, I'm still working through myself and so many other people are, are working through. So I, I love that you, the way that you express that and how that's sad and how that needs to change. So gosh, I feel like there's so much more we could keep talking about, but I do want to respect your time and wrap this up. So where can our listeners keep up with you and your work? You know, I'm on Facebook. Lately, I haven't been posting too much of anything just because there's just too much happening, you know. (laughs) So but yeah, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And as I mentioned before, I'm doing some writing. So I write for the UCC Daily Devotions, Rev Gal, Blog Pals. What is your Instagram and Twitter handles? Instagram is Hood and Holy. And Twitter is uh, MujerDeDios.mpb, even though I'm trying to, not dot, just MujerDeDios.mpb. Maybe at some point you can teach me how to change that because I want them all to be hood and holy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to change it and I, I couldn't figure it out, but yeah. Okay. And the last question, what is one thing about being Latinx and LGBTQ that you just want the rest of the world to understand? <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this about me, Taylor, but I process things out loud. So it's hard for me to crystallize anything. (laughs) That's fine. But there are three things I would say. Fluidity matters, ambiguity matters, and self-determination matters. And what I mean by that is that people ought to be able to choose not to just check off a box. How we present according to how people want to understand presentation isn't the only way of revealing who we are, right? And at the end of the day, I like the fact that I want to be able to, that's why I love the the word queer. For me, queer leaves space enough so that 
if I don't want to tell you exactly what that means, I don't have to. <laughs> because in some ways, as I'm still living into the fullness of who I am, I don't want to get stuck in any one quote unquote definition, one quote unquote box. And so when I say ambiguity, it's not a sense of dishonesty. It's a sense of it's okay for you to wonder because there's there's fun in wonder. There's opportunity for dialogue in wonder. There is space for getting to know each other more in wonder. And so for folk to just look at me or make assumptions or want to check want me to check off a particular box because it makes them comfortable, I for that. And I believe the more we create space for people to to joyfully show up in the world. And that fully showing up may be different from day to day, not because there's lack of clarity, but because, you know, we're, we're complex human beings. And so allow us to just be. Beautiful. I think we will leave it at that or else we're going to go on for another hour and a half and we'll have <laughs> part two and three and four of the podcast. But gosh, thank you so much for coming on the show and for everything you shared. The first few episodes that I've been doing this, every single time I come away like, wow, I'm so glad I had this conversation and got to, you know, got to hear all of this. And I, I know that our listeners will just really appreciate hearing all of this perspective too. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to keep up with Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida on Facebook. You can find me personally on Instagram at TaylorRama with two R's and on Twitter at TaylorRamage. You can also find my books on Amazon. I hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.